Welcome to another episode of Ask the Zamboni Experts. Today we have Dave Loverock, Vice President and Ice Maker Extraordinaire of Jet Ice, and Paul Golomsky, Facility Director of the Pettit Center in West Allis, Wisconsin. Along with myself, Doug Peters, we have Don Zamboni. We will be discussing ice, water, and the process and complexities of making water into skating ice. Welcome, gentlemen. Good afternoon, guys. Hello. Uh, Dave, uh, a while back in the industry, uh, there was days when John Karsh and Roy Gardner would sit in a room and say that they had over 100 years of experience. In the room today, are we approaching 200 years uh, between all four of us? No, Doug, it just feels like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's something uh, to get together with you, gentlemen. I want to thank you very much um, for participating in this. Hopefully our audience will get a lot of understanding about what it goes into making a sheet of ice. And I think that it's gonna be interesting for them to find out uh, what goes into specifically making a speed skating oval. Um, Dave, can you provide just a brief bit of history uh, with you and Jet Ice and your time in the industry? Uh, it appears that I've been around in this industry for 40 some odd years. Uh, just an ice maker. I started with uh, Doug Moore, who was the chief engineer at Maple Leaf Gardens. And from that point going forward, I spent the last 40 years hanging around cold, dark, dank rinks. Uh, strange enough, I hung around Paul's rink when it was being built. You know, that's quite a few years back, but that's uh, uh, basically a job of an ice maker. That's really what I am. That's what I do. Great. Thank you. Paul, how did you get involved in the industry and what's the genesis of your passion for ice quality and ice making at your facility? Yeah, so I, I um, have been involved in ice making since uh, 1998. Uh, I was very involved in hockey as a you know youth hockey player in the 80s and 90s and was really infatuated with the facility I'm in now when I was a, a you know high school athlete. Um, so working here was only natural for me, but um, I've been really, uh, you know, kind of intrigued by the science specifically behind speed skating and making people go fast. So that's really um, the science behind ice and speed skating has really kept me um, interested over the last 22 years. That's awesome. And it makes it an easy transition. Uh, now I'd like to transfer over to Don to get to the icy core of our discussion. Um, Don, please take it away. Yeah, we wanted to kind of uh, touch on some of the points that are um, involved in making quality ice. Uh, ice that is uh, dense is uh, more thermally uh, uh, conductive, so there's a lot of benefits to having a good sheet of ice, and uh, we just kind of wanted to talk some of the, the details uh, of what it takes to uh, make good ice. Just going down the list, uh, we have air as a possible topic here, dissolved air in, in water. Paul, do you have any uh, comments on air in water or, or Dave? You don't want to get me started, but yeah, there's a certain degree of interest in um, dissolved air in water. Really, when you make ice and you, um, well, there's a couple of things that you really want to stay away from. You want to stay away from air in the ice and you want to stay away from mineral content in the water which will give you, if you remove both of those factors, you'll have a harder, denser sheet of ice. Um, the air in ice that you really want to worry about is dissolved air. It's naturally occurring in most waters, and it is an 
it is unseen. But you want to remove the mineral content, you want to remove the dissolved air when you're making ice. And it's it's really a process of using of heating the water because heated water doesn't hold air. It's insoluble in hot water. Um, I'm a big proponent of hot water flooding and I think that anybody who drives a Zamboni has a good idea that um, it's a good direction to take for, for ice making. Yeah, I, I'm, I agree with you. Uh, hot water definitely has a history of making better ice. Um, I find it a little challenging that, that, that heating the water removes the gases uh, because to be honest with you, I'm, I'm looking for the gases physically. You know, uh, if, if heated water was truly taking the gases out, I would expect uh, the water coming out of a water heater to have air bubbles that we could see. And I'm a little bit perplexed on why we don't see that. You actually don't see it because it's released. It's, you can see it, you can actually quite see it simply in a pot. That's, that's the where you'll see it the best. It does release air, it flashes off. And you see that when you put a pot on a stove, although you uh, don't, you've seen it a hundred times probably, set, a, set aside a pot on the stove and slowly turn the temperatures up to about 140 degrees. And you'll notice that the water has a tendency to look like there's a white foam in it. And that's what it is, it's the dissolved air coming out of solution. When you heat the water, it's already extracting itself. And you have, uh, in most places, um, a system to fill your Zamboni and by that time all of the air is out of the water. It's not, it's not, it just releases itself to air. Mm -hmm. Well, um, some of the uh, reasons why hot water might help make uh, good ice is its thermal uh, um, effect on the frozen rink surface and its ability to melt into a, uh, uh, an impure surface from the last flood. Um, would you agree with that? Definitely. I definitely agree with that. It, it, anybody anybody goes out and takes the ice reservoir out and does a flood knows right away that you'll get a better sheet of ice. You can see it. It's, it's obvious. You'll get a better sheet of ice using 140 degree hot water for flooding. So I don't, I don't think that's even disputable. But, but that, that we do have two reasons why hot water makes uh, better ice then. No, it, it potentially, uh, well, it, it removes air and it also burns into the rink surface, uh, the frozen rink surface. Would we agree on that? Definitely. I, 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 I don't yeah, think I would that's... agree with that, Don. Anybody who's, anybody who's ever done cold water flooding for any extended length of time, their ice usually starts to take on that occluded look and it's the cloudiness of the air in itself that gets entrained in the ice phase. And uh, you can, there's a couple of things maybe we should talk about is uh, um, hot water flooding or maybe heading into the part about uh, tempering your ice, which is one of the things that also releases air and releases mineral content. But dissolved air and water is also in combination with mineral content of the water. But before we go into tempering, can we touch on RO water and why RO water is better? Well, RO water is just its a simple thing. Everybody, uh, everybody in the says, oh, Jedi, Jedi. Treating water has been around for a couple of hundred years anyways. Um, some places do it with just a filtration system. RO water is a, a membrane system that actually you put a pressure on one side of the membrane and 
push good water through it and all the mineral content goes in the other direction. So you start out with a high quality mineral free or almost mineral free water. And um, that in itself gives you the, the advantage of clarity of ice. And uh, it's, uh, it's part of uh, just about anybody who does, um, anybody who makes ice um, for everything from uh, a uh, hockey ice straight down to the people that make this, the, the swans for ice shows or ice cubes. Everybody's looking for that clarity. And the one way you get it is by removing the mineral content of water. Paul, can I, if I can jump in here, is there anything that uh, you guys do at your facility with regards to treating your water that goes down on your ice surfaces? Yeah, uh, we're we're using deionized water, which is um, you know the product water is is quite similar to uh, you know what what RO water would be. It's probably uh, slightly cleaner, but we were one of the first facilities that I'm aware of in the uh, early '90s to um, you know implement uh, treated water for making ice, and that was primarily uh, you know for speed skating purposes. And um, you know, pure water is just a it's a great solvent. Um, and it dissolves gases and solids so easily, um, you know, but once you put solids into the water, um, you know, especially for speed skating, if your solid content is too high, um, you know, a lot of times that solid just migrates to the surface and is a frictional force uh, for speed skating blades. Um, so, I mean, the other aspect to, to friction with, with skate blades is, um, you know, you could also have an abrasive force with some solids. So, you know, if the surface of an ice rink is covered with uh, with a lot of solid content, you could actually have an abrasive response to the skate blade and dulling it. Um, but in terms of glide, the glide that is required in speed skating, there's really no there's no method to make speed skating ice with a high amount of solid content. It just doesn't work for us. Um, and this is not really a subjective question because um, you know over the years uh, of of all the speed skating rinks in operation, uh, I'm sure I'm sure we've all had issues where where um, you know you have a problem with your purification plant and you've got to run a competition with with uh, water with high solid content, uh, and those competitions almost always go terribly wrong uh, when you have to use water with high solids for for uh, high glide skating activity. It definitely affects the quality of ice. There's never, that's, I don't think it's ever disputed. You take the mineral content of the water and that mineral content is gone. So you don't have what's called a spewing effect. During the freezing process, water has a tendency to reject mineral content. It's the last to freeze. Actually, the mineral content doesn't freeze, neither does the air. It's only the water that freezes. And so that mineral content has a tendency to rise or lift to the surface it's a, it's a spew effect actually as the water freezes it's trying to reject the magnesium the calcium the iron the sodium all the things that are in water that, that you drink not unusual and they have a tendency to start to head to the surface or to the load on the top so as, as the water freezes it's trying to reject all of that mineral content and then it ends up with a spew effect i'm sure that many people have seen it in the industry where you've got to you put your ice in and you've got a greasy surface. What have you got a greasy surface for? Well, the greasy surface is the mineral content. It's not unusual for guys to go out and scrape the ice to get that off of it. It's, uh, 
um, speed skating is critical. These guys are trying to knock off one hundredth of a second uh, of their time uh, by going around a four hundred meter track. Um, Churling's a lot the same. You have to you're trying to throw a, a forty pound rock one hundred and fifty feet, make it go out four feet and come back in four feet on with the turn of a handle. Um, the, the, you can't do that with a highly mineralized water. The other aspect that I wanted to include into that is, um, you know, with, with high mineral content, you're also going to have a freezing point depression. So, um, you know, by adding, adding solids to the water, uh, you know, the temperature of the water is naturally going to have a lower freezing point because of the solids are present. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's solids actually impede phase change of water and actually cause a depression in the, the freezing point itself. I was wondering, Paul, if you could uh, discuss the qu uh, the quantity of uh, minerals in the water. Um, you know, I, I believe you have the, the ability to purify your water very cleanly, but uh, there, there seems to be a process where we uh, pollute the water a little bit or a little bit more for hockey ice. And uh, I'm just wondering whether you could kind of tell us what you do with your water. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's kind of one of those uh, hotly debated topics in the ice world now. I was one of those people that always believed that um, that uh, ice ice could only be made with ultra pure water. And for many years, I was pretty stubborn about that. Um, and I had a, a very uh, well-experienced ice maker that I've worked with uh, in the past uh, proved me wrong on that one. And uh, the strange thing about, about solids in water is uh, small additions of solid back to purified water, uh, you know, seem to have some mechanism where they improve the bond of, of ice and actually somehow improve the durability of the surface. Uh, so it, it kind of defeats logic when, when you think about what we're discussing, how, how important purified water is uh, and, and how it, it, it's not energy efficient and it causes cloudiness and all kinds of problems with your ice. Uh, we're spending all this money to purify water and then we're, we're, we're taking uh, that water and sending solid back into it. Um, so it's, it's a strange process and uh, it's, I think, debatable by, by all the ice techs out there right now, but I've, I've found, um, I found a little bit of back blend of, of, of solids back into the purified water is helpful in terms of uh, durability and, and bond of layers together. Paul, I, I, I have a tendency to agree with you on that, but there are a number of rinks out there. Like we talk about water treatment. We're not the only water treatment business around, but a number of arenas do run straight RO or DI water. The adding of the mineral content is uh, used in a couple of places. It, we did it in New York for years. New York has great water. Their, their water is probably down around 17, 20 parts per million. Usually about a grain of hardness. Um, and their water, when you freeze it, it has a tendency to what we refer to as crawl. And that crawling of the ice is simply because it's too cold. Or when you're in 780,000 people in the building, you've got to compensate that load um, for air ice interface temperature. Now everybody has different temperatures that they run their surface at. But what they did was they would pre-cool the building, they'd pre-cool the floor and the building. So what happens when you went out and put a flood down on the sheet, 
you'd actually it would actually start to crawl or move. So what happens is with absolutely mineral free water, it has a tendency to migrate or move during the phase change. The freezing process, the water doesn't want to go through that phase change, it will actually start to move away from the freezing process, leaving a orange peel-like effect on your ice surface. And that's when you know you've got pure water and it's too cold. So to compensate for that, it became a, a, an issue where we'd add uh, uh, bicarbonate of sodium bicarbonate, dissolve it in a bucket, pour it into the Zamboni fill tank, and then flood the sheet. Um, that would stop the crawling and give you a nice smooth surface. And it's only uh, probably two ounces in uh, 165 gallons of water, but it would uh, solve the issue of uh, crawling on a night cold ice surface. Adding mineral content to water has been around for a long time, especially people that have pure water. Vancouver's got great water. New York's got great water. Boston has great water. But when you get out to the prairies or someplace on the other side of Atlanta where Florida's got horrible water, mineral content affects the quality of the ice almost immediately. Paul, could you maybe go into how your water is down there? It's got to be pretty decent. you got a lot of breweries in Wisconsin that uh, make beer, and I can't imagine that they're using crappy water to make beer. Yeah, uh, well, we use Lake Michigan water, uh, and it's it's very clean to start with. So we're generally measuring conductivity. Uh, so our conductivity of our city product water is about 330, and our deionization system can make water uh, down to a conductivity of 15, and that's on demand 50 gallons a minute and we found that to be um, to be too pure for most of our applications and kind of see the, the things that Bave was describing about water crawling um, for whatever reason um, when water gets that clean in our application it, it doesn't want to lay down flat um, we get a little bit of the crawling even if it's heated and um, so it's just a small it's a small addition of solids and really what we're trying to do is knock down that ability of the water to crawl and we want that surface tension to be uh, really low so it lays down in any any skating ruts that haven't been cut out instead of kind of standing up, which is what the crawling phenomenon looks like. That sounds right, Paul. I have one question, uh, Paul, in regards to that. Um, have have you noticed, I've, I've heard from uh, other makers of, of uh, oval ice that uh for example they they built their ice and they're normally flooding with really pure water and then the day before the skate event uh this same water that they've been laying on their rink is now uh not laying flat on the rink and uh it was suspected that uh there was banners brought into the building like advertising banners that had fresh paint on them and the paint uh, on these banners were off-gassing, and that off-gassing was somehow ending up on the rink, uh, the frozen rink surface. Um, is there any uh, credibility to that, uh, do you think? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So anytime that you have off-gassing of, of paints or solvents or anything that's in the air, um, what's going to happen is that creates a gas that's not oxygen or water, and you know, ice sheets act as natural dehumidifiers of gas. So it's gonna draw that, that impure solvent right down to the ice surface. And any time that anything, uh, any substance like inks or anything like that comes in contact with, 
with the ice service, it, it just wreaks havoc on it. Um, so I think that you're referring to um, an issue that uh, that happened uh, about six years ago. We don't want to name any ovals specifically, but it, it, it did indeed happen. And I've seen similar things happen here um, in situations where we striped our running track with a solvent-based product, and that solvent got into the air, and it just it it created a level of crawling on the ice surface that there was nothing that we could do. We could shave it over and over, and it it wouldn't come out. And uh, so it was a really strange uh, strange thing to see. And I think you know what what we did to get rid of that problem. Don, that's an interesting question, and Paul, great uh, feedback on that. It reminds me of a hundred years ago when I was young, and my dad was the engineer for the North Stars, and he got called out to Philadelphia, um, where they're having problems with their ice, and he watched their operation. And what they found was, when they were cleaning the seating area in the lower bowl, they were using pressure washers, and that spray with the soap um, was getting up over the glass back then they probably were using three and five foot and dave could probably verify that on glass height back in the days when um there was only 12 teams in the league but um that's what they found was that was contaminating the ice so i would think paul in your building um with the size of the building the volume of air that it's probably a major challenge to try to keep um, dust and whatever that's floating in the air or that can get trapped in the air um, from settling on the ice surface and causing you problems. Yeah, I mean, contamination contamination and ice rink surface contamination is a huge problem. And um, it's a regular problem that I think, you know, all ice makers are going to come in contact with. And it's really not just airborne contaminants. It can be, you know, people walking on ice. It can be pieces of rubber flooring or airborne dust and dirt, you know, fabric from hockey uniforms, uh, you know, even even the studs and tires from a Zamboni are a common source of contamination to, to ice rinks that really uh, can cause a lot of problems in terms of maintaining a high quality surface. You know, if you're running high level hockey or speed skating or, or any high level competition for that matter, you know, contamination is a big issue that you have to watch and be aware of. You know, how are things getting out onto your ice sheet and what are you doing to try to remedy those things? Paul, one of the things I wanted uh, to talk about, and Dave also, is the manipulation of TDS or, or conductivity, how we purify the water. And then uh, what are the reasons why we uh, pollute the water again? Is it only this crawling problem or are there other issues also? Well, it's, it's, you have to take into account there's another uh, number of factors that affect your ice sheet. Um, ice thickness, water quality, air in the ice phase, the late load, your air ice interface temperature. And we found that if you use absolutely pure water, you have to raise your temperatures. And when you raise your temperatures, other issues come into play. But what happens is I find that by adding a small amount of mineral content um, to uh, absolutely pure water, you don't get that shaling effect. There's um, it, uh, because ice is a, it, it thermally dries. You take a look at the outside edge of a skate mark on absolutely pure water. You'll notice there's little chips of ice off of it. It doesn't have that uh, nice textured edge to it. And I think that by adding a small amount of mineral content, it helps. Um, it helps with the surface. 
Dave, I wanted to ask a question that um, you brought up the topic of crawl at Madison Square Gardens. And yep. I'm just wondering, they've got the fast ice system uh, that we have for our machines, which sprays the water down. Is that something that either uh, is helped make that go away or they're doing things differently because of the fa having fast ice? Um, or does it reduce that crawl? Maybe if you could expand a little bit on your experience with the machines and their ice making capabilities before fast ice and post fast ice. Um, that's Jack and Polly. They're they're both uh, pretty good drivers. But uh, the nice thing about the fast ice system is the fact that uh, it gives you more consistency once it's set up and set up properly. Um, I know there's the guys out there, the old towel flood guys, been doing it this way for years, and they like it, and I'm not taking anything away from them. But uh, I just like to say that the fast ice system gives you a more consistent pattern of levelness when you're using two machines on the ice surface. Never been any question about it. So you set up the machines. Their biggest problem was the fact that you'd have two guys doing two different things on two different machines when you're doing your resurface. This way, you set them up. They're both going to put down the same amount of water. They're both going to drive at the same speed, and it's it, it's called a controlled flood. And uh, and you can also add a little bit more water when you get a little bit uh, deeper ruts. They put it in a couple of years back, and they love it. Great, thank you. It's we've got some similar feedback on a prior podcast that we did with Cody Bateman of the Dallas Stars, and he talked a lot about how uh, the quality of his, and he's had a fast ice system for the longest, I believe, of any NHL teams and more experienced than anybody that we know of. And he really said that uh, by being able to dial in speed and uh, water, can, water, how much water he's putting down really made a difference. And it's, I, I'm really kind of curious if it does aid in the ability to control the crawl more or if it really doesn't make any difference uh, between a flood towel and uh, flood flooding with a towel versus flooding with the fast ice system. On the crawling aspect, I don't think it does simply because the crawling aspect is related directly to floor temperature. But the other part too is you can, the nice part about it is you can dial up and dial down, whereas nothing against towel flood guys but you have more control over the amount of water you're putting down. Great, thank you. Don, you got another question ready for the gentleman? Yeah, um, when it comes to the manipulation of uh, dissolved minerals in the flood water, Paul, why don't you talk a little bit about that? I, I believe that you normally uh, use more pure water for uh, an oval versus your hockey ice. And uh, do we know the reasons why a higher TDS water works better for hockey ice versus uh, the pure water that you would normally lay on your uh, oval? Yeah, sure. I can touch on that. Um, you know, with speed skating, when you think about what they're doing, they're going 37, 38 miles an hour on a 400 meter oval and the blades are so thin and they have no hollow edge. So um, they're gliding on the surface. And so they really need water to be pretty clean and not have a lot of solid content but we need that ice to hold together um, and when you look at a, a blade of a speed skate after they skate by if i can even put the tip of a fingernail into that skate rut i know that something's wrong with our ice i mean that's how little they actually get into the ice surface it's really 
it's more sliding than gliding. They're sliding on the surface uh, outside of just the starting position where they jump into the ice a little bit more. Um, you know, so we're really more concerned about level and 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 temperature and and the ability for them to glide rather than the durability side of things. Where in you know hockey and short track and figure skating, you're really worried more about the durability of the ice, uh, being able to withstand those really strong forces. And to give you an example of how confusing this can get, the sport of short track speed skating, which has really high impact. So in the corners in short track speed skating, they're just destroying the ice. And over and over, they skate these laps. Um, and originally, short track used to be run on, on really clean water, just like we run long track. And now the, the entire industry of short track has only run on municipal water. Um, and it's not just because of the ability of water to crawl. It's that they believe that water, well, they don't believe, there's, there's objective evidence to prove that it does, um, but they believe that there's a significant addition of durability to, to water with a higher solid content um, for short track speed skating. I'm not saying the same thing happens with hockey or figure skating, but it's been going on now for, for I don't know, 10 years in short track where they refuse to use purified water and it kind of boggles uh, you know, the minds of all the ice guys that are, are convinced that, that purified water is the only way to go. And I'm not saying that, that I agree with that 100%, but, but I, I'm just making the statement that that's what's happening. And the mechanism of, of how or why this, these solids improve durability or, or they think they improve durability is, is hard for me to explain. Possibly the fact that it's a softer interface by the fact that you've added mineral content to it. It's not just water frozen. The fact that you've now got a, 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 a textured surface. They, when they go into those corners in short track, they just chew it up so badly. And for years, do you remember dumping out, going out with big buckets of water and flooding it so you'd soften the interface up? It, it's an interesting topic, Paul um, and Dave. I was visiting a rink not too far from you, Paul, and they were talking about how the water that they were using, and I don't know if they were drawn off city water, and I imagine it varies from municipality to municipality, but they talked about how sticky their ice was, and it's something I haven't heard in all the years I've been in the industry, but they took a couple buckets, one of purified water and one of just regular water, dumped it down, and were able to get the puck to glide differently on the pure water than they were on the uh, the regular tap water. And this was something that made a difference for their younger hockey players. So it's interesting, all the different things that you run into in trying to make different ice. And you've got two inner hockey rinks or figure skating rinks in addition to the oval. And I'm guessing it's a challenge to try to make the ice where everybody's comfortable and happy with the, the quality because hockey players want colder ice, figure skaters want warmer ice, and speed skating ice is just completely different. Yeah, I mean, we, we have the ability, we have a pretty advanced Rockwell automation system here where we can control all three sheets independently pretty precisely. The air temperature is what it is, you know, whatever the air is for the whole rink, uh, it's a 155,000 square foot arena. So that's that's pretty constant, but 
you know, water quality for us is tricky because we, we, we have only one water source of our purified water and whatever the blend is, it's going out to all three rinks. So a lot of times when the oval's not in, we're playing with blend uh, of solids uh, to appease short track speed skaters or hockey players a little more. Um, and then, you know, once the oval's in, we're going a little bit pure uh, on the uh, cleanliness side with the purification um, just to uh, keep the speed skaters moving as fast as we possibly can. I mean, that's really our our bread and butter here is speed skating. But the funny thing about what we were talking about earlier with the puck moving and sticky ice is, you know, the way that a puck moves or will move on purified water or city water is kind of independent on what's best for skates or, or you know, higher levels of play. You know, the, the puck might move faster on purified water uh, and get better glide like a speed skate blade would, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, that the ice is going to have uh, you know, better durability or, or uh, dense qualities uh, for the sport of hockey or, or figure skating. Dave, have you done any testing or had, in your experience, uh, had people comment about glide of puck? I know it's a big issue in the NHL where they talk about will the puck ever lay flat for a shot to go? It's a rubber puck. It's a rubber puck. It's supposed to bounce. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah, I, I often wonder about when you talk about glide. Glide's a, a rather peculiar phenomenon because you, and really, if you've got to have a high mineral content and you've got a greasy surface, or if you have, um, uh, if you're not aware of what your relative humidity is in the building, you'll get a, um, a, a skinning of frost or accumulation of, sometimes you, you think your ice is a little bit greasy. It might not be mineral content. It might be condensate that's, settling out on your surface. But in most cases, uh, a, a purified water will give you a great glide. It doesn't seem greasy because it is thermally dried. It is ice. And there's no mineral content in it. The puck should slide more rapidly, more freely. And as for um, the uh, relative humidity, it's something that should be taken, care of, taken, taken into account when you do something like uh, start firing pucks around, because that surface is uh, either it's sublimating or it's uh, absorbing uh, a frost. Don, I don't know if you want to expand or have any more questions on that topic. Yes, I'd like to, uh, most of our discussions appear uh, to be related to the surface of the ice when we're talking about purified water. And I'd like to dig in a little bit deeper on uh, what RO does to the structural integrity of the ice um, improvements there and whether we can talk about that. And, and, and also with Paul, with his, uh, his uh, oval ice, you know, the ice is virtually perfectly clear. And uh, I, I believe clear ice is a reflection of um, almost a pure crystal. And... Um, I'm just curious, uh, not saying that, that a pure ice is ideal hockey ice, uh, but I'm wondering uh, what is the disadvantages of having solid ice? Uh, and this comes down to the way the hockey and figure skate uh, skates actually penetrate the ice and, and actually cause the ice to fail. And, and I'm wondering whether RO is involved in uh, how the ice fails uh, when the skate is penetrating. 
I think a lot of that has to do with your air ice interface temperature and the, well, the, the texture of the ice more than anything. And that's usually the texture of the ice isn't always reflective on mineral content or purity, whether it's DI or RO. It's reflective on the, the temperature of the slab itself. A lot of the figure skating events we do, we're running air ice interface temperatures 26, 27, 28. It gives them a softer texture. Figure skaters generally as a whole find that uh, the softer uh, interface allows them to go and do that jump without blowing out large chunks of ice. I, I, I really do believe that in a lot of cases, people for figure skating have their, have their buildings far too cold. It's, for years, it wasn't... Uh, it was a simple fact that at nighttime, you'd have the shutdown, you bring your temperatures up, the figure skaters, the mums and tots would come into your building, they'd skate around, and uh, as the temperature started to climb to that 28, 29, and then you got hockey in the afternoon or in the evening, you start pulling your floor down that three or four or five degrees. It was based on energy savings, but it really was um, providing the figure skaters with a softer interface, which they seemed to like for figure skating. We did the Nationals years ago in Nashville, and in Nashville, we ran a, a surface temperature, scared me to death. We were at 30 degrees, and they just loved the ice. The only problem was it took longer to take up during the flooding process, and that was part of the issue that they had. Okay, un understood. Now, uh, th that, just, that answer was very much related to, to temperature, but I kind of wanted to stick on the, the, uh, the, the structure of the ice. And, and uh, why does hockey ice and figure skating ice need to be different than oval ice? And, and I'm wondering whether uh, ice that is too pure, let's say uh, uh, ice that is perfectly clear, will a uh, hockey, a penetrating hockey skate tend to uh, penetrate deeper because the forces are able to penetrate deeper into the ice and we have deeper fractures because the ice is so pure. Is um, I could be really wrong on this, but uh, I'm I'm wondering whether uh, the impurities uh, in flood water create uh, slight weaknesses between the flood layers that kind of uh, buffer the lower levels of the ice uh, from uh, forces of the skate lake. Yeah, Don, I should I should jump in and say that my ice my ice on my oval is not perfectly clear all the time. <laughs> it it is perfectly clear uh for large events if we have an international event uh or a national level event where there's a lot on the line uh generally what we'll do is we'll we'll shut down the the track to the public or anybody else for a week and we'll we'll spend several days taking off the top quarter inch or three eighths inch ice that is full of contamination and full of solids and dirt um you know the the upper levels of of ice are often very heavily contaminated so we find that there's a lot of benefit for speed skating specifically to really you know run our run our ice at a at a thickness where when we have big competitions we can take that top top three eighths inch ice off and then we have crystal clear ice that hasn't been skated in before and and that surface performs better than than any you know daily or weekly surface that that we put out there but in terms of in terms of having hockey or figure skating on an ultra pure, ultra clean surface, uh, you know, I kind of have to agree with Dave a little bit in the fact that you know, ultra pure water at a real low temperature generally will break a little bit easier than 
then ultra pure water will at a at a higher temperature. If you're if you're running speed skating ice temperatures and a figure skater goes to jump into it, it's going to blow up. Uh, but if you're running more typical figure skating temperatures and um, and that ice is still very clear and and pure, uh, I think it has a tendency to be a little bit more durable. Uh, so the temperature comes into the equation. Uh, but but you're right. The question of of how the solids present play into uh, the durability factor and the forces into the ice. I mean, the forces that these athletes are putting into the ice are, is just tremendous. Thousands of pounds of force into into a figure skating jump or a hockey turn, uh, you know, in one spot. And really, the ice, all ice, is going to break to some extent. It's just a question of of how badly and how deeply it breaks. To me. Paul, uh, one of the things that I'd like to ask from this is, um, and I've talked with a few other uh, buildings around the country and around the world, I guess it would be, being in Canada, um, where they temper their ice. And that's has something that, again, I'm not an ice maker. I just uh, supply product to uh, help you guys out. But I'm just wondering how much tempering do you guys do either on your inner rinks or on your oval? And what kind of an impact does that have on the ice surface? Yeah, I mean, it's a regular thing that we do here. I think we, we temper our inner rinks to a certain extent every night because we have uh, scheduling capability of our ice temperatures overnight. Anytime there's not someone in the building, I'm driving temperatures up as high as I possibly can. Um, so you have the energy savings benefit to that, but also, you know, as Dave talked about earlier, um, when ice gets warm, it has the ability to kind of relax and, and it has a tendency to float up solids and really release a lot of that, uh, you know, dissolved uh, properties in the upper levels of, of the surface. So when you can let your surface warm up as, as high as you possibly can without floating paint, um, you know, over a long period of time, let's say six or eight hours, and then bring it down slowly, it has tremendous benefits in, in purifying the sheet, letting a lot of the stress that's in the ice sheet out, uh, you know, getting rid of some of the dissolved uh, impurities and solids and gases and that kind of thing. But uh, we've done it. We do it on a regular basis. Uh, on the oval, I'm a little bit uh, less likely to do it because we typically run ice temperatures a bit thinner on a speed skating track than you would a hockey track. Um, but I'll still push, you know, I'll push 28 degrees overnight on on all of our sheets. And and with hockey, you know, there's some guys that temper ice and they'll, they'll temper it until the surface is wet and then bring it back down. And, you know, it can really help with clarity and that kind of thing. Cleaning up the sheets is a, a wonderful thing by uh, using the tempering method. I think the first time I ever saw it was back in probably the 70s, late 70s, early 80s at Maple Leaf Gardens. And uh, the chief engineer there, Doug Moore, took out a large hose, shut the plant off, and put out about 2,000 gallons of water. Let it sit, watched his slab. Actually, he only had two sensors feed and return on his uh, brine. And as that temperature climbed, he would get to a point where, okay, we got a temper now, turn the plant back on and slowly pull it back down to that range. I think it was like 16, 18 feet of return. 
and then he would send out the ice resurfacers and back then you could take the uh, wash water tank and feed it back into the dump box you pick up another 75 or 80 gallons in that thing before you and sammy would go out and they'd pick up all the loose water and uh, take that off the sheet and but surprisingly, you wouldn't believe how clean the sheet looked up after that. It's a wash tempering. Uh, tempering for other people might mean something else. Um, Calgary temperature tempers the rice as well by allowing the temperatures to rise up to that 28, 29, 30 degrees and then slowly brings it back down. And everybody that does tempering really does believe that it, gives a, it brings texture into play more so than anything and the benefit is also the clarity. You both, thank you, Dave. You both have uh, brought up some very good um, information about tempering. For those of us who, myself included, um, who maybe don't understand what that terminology means to temper, could you maybe expand a little bit and put it in basics so that some of the people that are listening who might not be uh, as astute in the making of ice would better understand what it means or what, if tempering has multiple meanings like what you mentioned uh, previously, Dave. And tempering's been around as long as I've been in this industry. Uh, some people did it for different reasons. Um, but one of the things that we first noticed it at was um, uh, covering your floor. People would cover their floors for events in the larger venues. And so what would happen was you'd cover the floor up and you'd no longer have a load on your ice sheet and what happened is the texture of the ice, once you get below that uh, air ice interface temperature, 20, 22 degrees, you'd find that the ice starts to get shaly. And the shaleness, the shaleness of the ice comes from the fact that you're so cold that you change the texture of the ice. So when you, tempering became the thing when you pulled up, I think they were using back then was homosote. I remember homosote horribly. And you would cover your, your floor with home so you'd have your concert. But the problem was when you went to cover your floor, most times it was immediately following a hockey game where you would head the floor really cold because you were trying to freeze the water. And so you've got your brine or your glycol going out to your slab at 14, 16, or 12, 14. And coming back, you've got now you've put a couple of scrapes on a flood, you've covered the floor with the home soap. And now that floor is actually pulling down to that temperature. Okay, you've set your change your brine temperatures up to whatever you want when it covered your deck. So you want temperatures up on the floor, probably 25, 26 degrees when it's covered. But the brine out on the floor is still at 16. Well, that would actually dehydrate the ice. It's probably the best term to use it. Um, and that would give you that horrible texture or shaly ice. So what you did was you pulled up your floor, did a couple scrapes, cleaned it up, and then put a couple of really big hot floods into it to temper your ice back up to give it that texture you want for hockey. Great. Um, Paul, I'm going to ask a question uh, for you maybe that when if you do any type of tempering, does it make the ice denser by getting rid of any impurities that may float towards the surface? And that'll lead me to the next question I have once you've answered. Uh, yeah, I mean, by definition, it should. It should, um, it should release some of those, um, you know, impurities that we don't want into the ice to the surface. And I mean, I should point out that after, 
you do any tempering like this, ice maintenance is important too to go out there and, and do a heavy cut to try to get rid of all those things that are on the surface. So go out and dry shave the whole sheet, you know, get rid of anything, anything that may have been migrated up to the surface um, and go from there. Great. Um, I, I want to get Don involved in here because I know that he's um, worked with you and a few others uh, in regards to wash water and uh, the wash water filtration. Don, can you maybe expand a little bit on what type of filtration that we're using currently and the things that you've worked with with Paul at his facility? Uh, yeah, um, well, before we go off to wash water filtration, if you don't mind me uh, going back to ask Paul real quick on the surface uh, properties of your rink after uh, tempering, uh, do you notice more uh, debris on the surface uh, after your pad comes down in, in after a tempering process? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, as what Dave talked about before, the, the slimy kind of greasy surface that that uh, you get with with solid accumulation on the surface is if it's done properly uh, should be visible uh, and I mean you can run your fingers over it and feel it and see it um, so so definitely I mean if you're doing it if you're doing it properly you should get some some float up there this kind of goes back to our discussions uh, of Paul and Ari uh, Pintala from uh, uh, Pro Rink and in uh, Finland. Uh, Ari has been a, a friend of ours. Uh, Paul and I have been talking to Ari and, and uh, yeah one of the things that, that have come out of our conversations has been the filtration. Um, getting a lot of uh, diverse feedback on what's being captured in these filters. Uh, currently the Zamboni company is selling a 400 micron screen of uh, wash water filter bag and also a thicker 200 micron uh, wash water filter bag that is catching the minerals that uh, we talked about earlier. Um, can you share with us what uh, what you're doing on your oval? Yeah, so uh, we're on a daily basis on our hockey sheets and our oval, we're using 100 micron felt filters. And um, I don't know how much of a difference 200 to, micro to 100 will make. Uh, but but that's a pretty big difference in size. So with 100 micron, we're capturing a very high amount of solids on our hockey rinks. Um, and then, you know, when we go into higher level speed skating competitions, once we have our ice closed down and we do a shave down to get, you know, those upper level contaminants out of the ice surface, um, you know, once we're satisfied with where the ice level is and, and the cleanliness of the ice and the surface, then we start using 25 micron filtration for the remainder of the competition. And the purpose of 25 micron for speed skating is to ensure that really no suspended solids get trapped in the ice or on the surface uh, during any major competition. And uh, we go as far as, um, you know, a lot of people are gonna think I'm crazy here, but with wash water, your conductivity and or total dissolved solids is gonna increase as you go throughout the day. So if you leave your wash water tank full of water, even if you're filtering it, the conductivity and the amount of solids that get past that filter are still there. Um, so for speed skating, when we're using 25 micron filters, um, we're going as far as dumping the wash water every resurface, uh, just to ensure that we're not throwing any, any level of dissolved solids down back onto the ice 
um, outside of what we want to have there. But it's also a good, the 25 micron is also a really good measuring stick of how clean your ice is. You know, if you're running a high level competition, your ice should be really clean, shouldn't have a lot of solid or, or entrapment in it. Um, when we go down to that 25 micron and, and resurface for a day, I shouldn't really see much of anything coming into that filter. And that's, that's really a gauge for me as, uh, you know, how well we're doing uh, with, with cleanliness and entrapment on the surface. We started talking about wash water filtration like 10 years ago. And I mean, the, the original discussion was based on the fact that I didn't think the wash water filtration was tight enough in the, the plastic baskets. Um, I, are those like 800 micron or what is the original plastic basket, do you know? Wow. I, yeah, that's a big micron. Uh, yeah, I don't know the number, but it's uh, very it's prob- coarse. It's probably 800 or 1,000 microns. So, you know, we, start, we started discussing that about 10 years ago. If there's a way that we can, you know, I didn't think we were capturing very much in the wash water stream. And uh, so, you know, you had kind of come up with some ideas on, on what we could try. And so we tried these, um, you know, felt filter bags that are lower micron than what uh, the, the basket was capturing. And pretty quickly, we knew that we were onto something in the fact that, that I was getting just loads and loads of solid into these felt filter bags that I wasn't getting before in the uh, plastic baskets. So um, that kind of evolved where we tested them for a few years and, you know, really saw an improvement. And when you think about the wash water operation, you're, you're washing the surface and all that water is getting vacuumed up through this filtration system. And if you're not capturing um, the suspended solids or even larger dissolved solids into a filter, then it's, it's really just going back to the ice. And um, so if you, if you want to remove and truly wash your surface uh, before putting down a new layer of ice, you really need to capture it in a tighter micron filter in that washing system. Uh, very good. Uh, one of the things I thought I would touch on is the diversity of pollutants that we're catching in these filters. Um, what I've kind of found is uh, with people with RO systems, these these filters are at least our 200 micron filter bag tends to last uh, well over a month. And the contamination within the bag tends to get dark like and uh, I'm, I'm kind of suspicious that it's biological uh, growth that's creating this dark uh, color within the bag. But one of the things that that I found really odd was uh, the people that flood their rink with with tap water. And it appears though tap water where these filters are clogging up with a whitish powder, which appears like, uh, you know, if you, you put two and two together, it appears like these 200 micron filters are capturing uh, minerals that were once dissolved in the flood water. So um, I'm kind of encouraged at, the, uh, at that, but uh, I'm not sure um, how, uh, how that's going to affect the ice in the long term. Donnie, I'd have to suggest that, yeah, the white powder you're getting off of it is mineral content. We used to see it in curling quite a bit where people would go out and curl and slide up and down the ice. And on the surface of the ice, they would pick up, they'd have white knees on all their pants. And that's just... Uh, a calcium, magnesium, uh, mineral hardness that uh, is probably being picked up in the bag from the tap water. Right, that's the way I'm taking this too. Um, and uh, 
I am hopefully, well, uh, hopefully this is going to lead to better bonding between uh, the flood water that we're laying down and what we're washing. Uh, would you guys agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anytime you're removing, anytime you're removing suspended solids or even dissolved solids in high, high amounts, you're definitely going to have a better, better bond with with uh, your ice making water afterwards. We'll kick it into uh, another topic that both uh, Dave and uh, Paul can maybe touch on. Um, if you guys could explain uh, the basics of how water molecules freeze and how the uh, impurities get pushed to the uh, top of the surface. And Don, maybe you might have some questions in regards to that as well. Yeah, uh, th this is really interesting to me. And, and uh, I kind of want to bounce things off of Paul because uh, I thought our past discussions kind of led us to believe, uh, led me to believe that Paul uses more pure water uh, on his oval versus uh, hockey ice. Um, and I'm wondering whether uh, the damage to the ice itself, the skate groove uh, that is created by skate, uh, of skates penetrating the ice, whether the mineral content in the water is aiding the repair of a skate groove. Um, you know, ice that's completely flat, it's, it's pretty easy to, to picture the ice freezing from the bottom up um, in, in an organized way. But when we're talking about ice freezing in a V-shaped groove, um, it's, it's not so simple. Um, you know, we, um, freezing water molecules, I believe are, are, are very organized and, and it's almost like building a block wall. And, and when we have interfaces at different angles, like let's say we got one side of the skate groove at one angle and one side of the skate groove on the other, what happens when those freezing interfaces inter, uh, interconnect? And, and does pure impurities in the water help repair these uh, angle uh, problems uh, when they meet? I wish I had the science background to tell you the truth on that one, Don, but that's a really hard question for me to answer. Yeah, it's probably impossible to answer. Uh, any speculation on your side? Yeah, I mean, I, five years ago, I would have said no way. I would have said that I think that that solids don't play a good role in, in ice making. But, you know, I think like like we've talked about throughout this podcast that that those small amounts of solids, to me, they seem to have some, I'm not saying anybody should, in a professional rink, should go without purified water. I wouldn't suggest that. But what I'm suggesting is that somehow, some way, to me, there's some sort of bonding property that solids provide outside of just, just the crawling mechanism that, that reduces crawling. I don't, I, I don't know what it is because I don't have the, the scientific background to be able to study and identify it. Um, but this is, I mean, that's purely based on speculation of, of what I see visually in my rink and what, I, what I've seen going from ultra pure water, you know, to using a little bit more of a blend. There seems to be better, better uh, um, bonding and durability with a small amount of solid. It, it appears like it's popular at the NHL level to actually have hot wash water in the machine. And uh, I would take that as a... Uh, a way to purify the skate groove and make sure that we don't leave any uh, uh, snow in the skate groove. Uh, does do you believe snow plays a role in uh, skate grooves not being uh, uh, repaired correctly? 
I really do believe that uh, when you use the wash water and use wash water religiously, most of the snow and everything is taken out of the groove. What comes back is the flood that remains over top of it. And if you've got large ruts, they don't freeze. They just don't. You can be there for 20, 30, 40 minutes and that cut doesn't freeze. And it freezes from the bottom and the sides. And you'll see that when you do that, when you go back out to a rink that's you've tried to fix something up, unless you patch it with slush, it, it just doesn't seem to recover. And when it does recover, if you just leave water in a cut, you'll see that freezing from the outside, the last part to freeze is a cloudy, milky surface or section in the center of the cut. Yeah, I would agree with that, Dave. I think that a lot of the the cloudiness and contamination that you do see in ice is kind of a result of of those big grooves that that aren't getting fully cut out or fully fully freezing properly how they would, you know, with a with a smaller uh, foot footprint into the ice. So if you had a smaller groove, it's easier to cut out, easier to freeze. You get these giant giant corner ruts, um, you know, that are probably happen in the NHL a lot. Um, you know, I don't, I don't really know how you can freeze those rapidly. There's really not a way to do it. Only way to do is pack it in with slush and, and just give it, some people use CO2. I've never been a big fan of it because it's so cold. Um, but in most cases you just pack them in, slush them down and hope that, hope that it stays. You, you can take a look at most NHL buildings after the warm up. It's, it's usually quite critical around the net area and, uh, out there, Guys sometimes putting on too much water to fill the cuts in. And I think sometimes that's part of the issue too. But Dave, don't you think that wouldn't the slush fundamentally trap air in the groove? Yep, hate to say it, but it does. And and freezing with a CO2 container does would cause it to freeze from the top down, which uh, kind of upsets our rejection process. Yep, you're right. I've, I've never, I, CO2 is CO2. What is it, minus? is 47 degrees we've had a couple instances where we've had uh, chunks blowing out of the ice and the actual a piece that's six inches round how do you patch that you can't you can't just start pouring water on it it's not going to freeze fast enough so you you have to slush it down pack it down and co2 it you see guys come up with co2 extinguisher and, and co2 is heavier than air so what you really want to do is enclose that area like a box with no top or bottom of it, slowly squeeze the CO2 into that box and let the CO2 hang in the air and freeze it down. It doesn't give you a, uh, it gives you a patch, but that's all it does. And normally when you finish that patch using CO2, it's good to hit it with a splash of water to bring the temperature back up. Right, now I've heard of people patching grooves like you just suggested, but I have heard people using uh, a clear ice from a clear ice cube machine, right? So the ice chunks that are going into the skate groove are clear ice and not shaven ice from the surface, which we know is really impure. Um, Maybe we can improve the repair to the groove if we put better ice in? (laughs) I I can tell you a short story. I uh, I think Jack at uh, Madison Square Gardens relate to this one. Uh, The Rangers always had issues with their ice for a couple of years, but um, <laughs> we had a bad crease one, yeah, a bad crease because it was it was rather thin, and the only way to fix it up was to uh, flash freeze it. So they uh, grabbed a bunch of ice cubes from the uh, ice cube machine and 
laid it over the crease area. Well, actually, it was much bigger than that. Uh, and then sprayed water on them and let them freeze. Uh, come back six hours later, and you could see there were the ice cubes with the holes in the center of them. And you could see them all over the entire area. Like They looked like little wee ice donuts in the sheet. Um, where the ice, they put the pure ice, uh, ice cubes, it was all nice and clear. And then the cloudiness of the water that froze around them. It was a rather peculiar phenomenon. It was, a, it was sort of a rude awakening for both of us. Uh, that's very interesting. Um, yeah, I would take that as uh, the cloudiness is creating weakness. Would you agree? And, and uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. We have a graphic that uh, we will post to the website so that uh, you'll be able to link to it while you're listening to this podcast uh, that talks about the freezing process. And Dave, Paul, if you guys could maybe expand a little bit about this wonderful graphic. Really, the process of, of making ice is, a, is a, a constantly building the surface in, in specific layers and flash freezing. I'm a big proponent of using pure water. Um, and sometimes you'll want to add a small mineral content. I'll agree with that all on that one. Uh, but what you want to do is flash freeze it. You want to continually freeze water and you do it in thin, thin layers. Um, you'll get the, if it's absolutely pure water, you don't have to worry about mineral content that's in it because there is none so it's just all you've got is hydrogen bonding and you'll build up a nice thick piece of glass but continually do it in layers continually freeze it don't let the water go out there and lay there because you're actually melting back ice i was guilty of it for years i'd go out and do the eight hundred thousand gallon flood and then go lie down for four or five hours waiting for it to take up but if you continually build ice you'll get a harder denser clearer sheet and if you have minerals in your water, they continually, they become entrained in your ice sheet. They also start to salt out. So the actual um, mineral content starts to rise to the surface. You can see it, we do it in, um, we have it in curling clubs where you uh, put on large floods and then you scrape to get the mineral content out of them. I mean, the graphic, the graphic that you have here is really showing how, just how well organized water needs to be in order to freeze. It needs, water needs, a uh, you know, a fair amount of, of organization in order to be a, a crystal clear sheet of ice. And solids don't play a big, big role in that organization. So water, um, and Don and I had read a long time about uh, Gerald Pollack's research. Uh, he's a bioengineer out of Washington State. And uh, has, he's done a lot of research, you know, basically proving that water forms an exclusion zone. And this is a prime graphic kind of showing how water needs to order itself and water wants to be in a very ordered state. And, um, you know, the solids, especially an ice rink, when you're freezing from the bottom up, um, the solids are, are pretty naturally being rejected by the ordered state of the water. Um, and we didn't talk about it earlier with hot water, but the, uh, Gerald Pollack from uh, Washington also uh, really did a lot of research that showed, um, you know, that hot water has more energy and heat and heat increases thermal motion of the water um, so really the energy promotes freezing we talked a lot about you know how important hot water was but you know there's a lot of speculation now that that it's not just dissolved gases um, that it's also the rapid ordering of water because of the thermal motion of the water that heat possesses um, but if, if every ice maker knew that, that water needs to be this ordered 
and reject solids, I think the processes and the general uh, understanding would be a lot better. Great. Thank you, Paul and Dave, for, for your answers. Don, do you want to expand on this topic a bit? Yeah, I'd like to make a statement about the, the illustration that we have, one, two, three, and four. And uh, um, I don't believe the, the figure number four is really a true a representation of what happens. I, I, with my experience, it doesn't seem like ICE is able to restrict or, or reject um, impurities to that uh, level of, of uh, purity in figure four. It seems like uh, things kind of go awry near the end, and it almost seems like the water has a certain TDS that uh, once we hit that conductivity or that impurity of, of flood water, that we start entrapping uh, either gases or minerals. Um, so uh, I don't believe uh, figure four is correct. Well, would you guys agree with that? Yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that water is purifying itself, but I would suggest that water does not like to have solids in it, especially when it's trying to freeze. So it's generally trying to organize and reject, but, but like you say in figure four, it's probably not as dramatic as what's happening in four where where you've got this ultra pure water and you know seven layers of of hydrogen and oxygen bonds and and then this layer of solid i don't think it's quite that pronounced um but uh i definitely agree that um the drawings are a good illustration of of what's potentially happening there yeah i was a little bit uncomfortable using this illustration because i think number four is a little bit fundamentally wrong but uh I thought I would bring it into uh, this discussion just because it, it helps us uh, discuss the topic of rejection towards the surface. Well, I think that, Don, I think you're right on. If you look at, we're talking about a sheet of ice here, but if you take a look at the, uh, when you're making ice cubes in your home, it has the same sort of effect where if you freeze the outside perimeter, you lock everything in the inside. It's only the water that freezes. It's not the little air bubbles or the dissolved air in water, and it's not the mineral content. They don't want to freeze, so they move to the center or the heat, and that's where they uh, that's where they collect. And right at the final freezing is that center of the ice cube, and that's when you look at it. That's where all the mineral content is, and the outside perimeter is all nice and clear. There's some validity to all of your drawings there. Gentlemen, uh, is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience today in regards to ice making secrets that uh, you're willing to let out? Uh, any interesting products that are out there that swirl water the proper way to to make it uh, more energy efficient and create better ice? Uh, Doug, I won't be baited by you, <laughs> but I, I I really do. When you talk about when you talk about quality ice. I still think, say a lot of it has to do with uh, knowledge and communication and the driver. Uh, a good driver is worth a small fortune. I know drivers are all going, oh, geez, that's me actually going to pay raise. But in most cases, it's the driver that makes the decision on what he does when he goes out to that sheet. And he's got to make a call whether he's going to take off a full bucket, a half a bucket. He's just going to do, pick up some snow and use a wash water with a, you know, a half an inch coming up, a quarter inch coming off the spreader pipe. 
but a good driver knows his ice sheet. He's able to read it and he knows what he's doing. He steps on the ice. Bad drivers go out there and they'll take off a full bucket and dump a full load. But it's not even necessary. And I think a lot of the things you talk about when you talk about quality ice is the fact that some of the people aren't trained properly. So it's more of an education process. And as I said, it's uh, important to understand that the drivers play a big part in your quality of ice. Great. And, and Paul, um, how about you? Is there any secret uh, that you're willing to share, some special sauce that uh, uh, our listeners might want to know what uh, you do to make your ice the best that it can be? I am a big proponent of uh, Dave's Jet Gloss uh, uh, chemical that they sell as a... Um, <coughs> Dave, Dave might be able to elaborate on that a little bit. I, I do like the uh, Jet Gloss chemical for ice. I think that's a great uh, a great way to produce a quality sheet. Um, but, I mean, in general, it's all about the details in ice making. They're, all the small things matter. And if, if you ignore the small things or just have a good enough mentality, then it, you're never going to have a successful building. It just has to be you know, a commitment to quality and a commitment to understanding what you're doing, I think yields the best results. And really every building is different, right? What, what might work for me might not work for another guy with, with different facility automation or different water quality or different purification plants. So it's really optimizing what's best for your facility and user groups. Dave, do you want to touch on the Jet Ice uh, Jet Gloss product, which is a oxygen scavenger maybe let people know a little bit about that and not uh, really what, what it does no <laughs> <laughs> oh you know what this is this started like probably 35 years ago we talked about um this goes back to doug moore and gil adamson and it was about it's about the surface tension of water and um what you want to do is you want to remove the surface temperature of water and allow dissolved air or air bubbles that are entrained in your ice sheet rise to the surface and break it's a, all it is is a surfactant. It's a surface-acting agent. It's used in small doses on the last flood of the night, maybe once a week, maybe twice a week. And you go out and you fill your machine up to one heavy flood. And what it does is allow the air to come to the surface, the bubbles to break, uh, any air that's entrained in your ice sheet. Um, and uh, it gives you a, a, a cleaner, clearer sheet of ice. And, uh, People who use it, use it properly. People who use it, use it religiously. Right. Well, I'm not going to let uh, you completely off the hook. I Possibly for a future podcast, we can try to see um, by bringing in an angry ice guy by the name of Mr. Peduto to see if we can't get, <laughs> can't get, can't get your head to spin a little bit by talking about uh, the plastic wands that are out there and available. And, you know, I, I just, it's really, all it is is the, the wands and the, the guys that talk about these uh, units, it's just bad science. Paul, I <laughs> want to ask you a question. Uh, we had a one-of-a-kind machine at the original Oval in West Dallas. It was a Model L. Just wondering if you have had any experience with that uh, or ever got to see it in operation. Uh, I, I didn't have the pleasure of seeing it at operation. I've shown pictures to all the speed skating volunteers and officials here, and they all have pretty fond memories of it. And to explain how that worked is, you know, in speed skating years ago, they used to use snow as lane markers outside instead of a continuous two-inch line like we use now. 
And so this machine could actually make a snow line to mark, uh, to mark a lane in the ice. And, but it would throw the snow to the inside of the track is what I understood. Um, and I did see that at, at R&R in, in Somerset, Wisconsin, a few years ago in the grave, Zamboni graveyard they have there. Um, we're really excited about the, the idea that yeah, you're restoring it and um, can't wait to see what it looks like being a one-of-a-kind machine. Well, we'd love someday, if it could, uh, once it gets restored, to get down and find a home at your facility on display because it would be a good location for it uh, with people getting an opportunity to relive the past as to what, what it was used for and maybe some more history for the, the facility that you're there. Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. Great. Um, as I'm a foodie, I'm going to uh, ask, I guess it's now my trademark questions. I believe that I've found it's top two for me. There's a place down in Florida called Tom Jenkins, but Saz's Barbecue is one of my favorites. When I visit the Milwaukee area, I will try very hard to, to visit there. Are you a fan of Saz's Barbecue, Paul? It's great. Yeah, love barbecue. Saz's is like a Milwaukee tradition here. So you're not going to find many people in Milwaukee that don't like Saz's. Okay. Is there some place that's going to be comparable that maybe you put uh, a little bit higher up the list than Saz's? Uh, yeah, I eat Mexican food like four or five times a week. So um, there's lots of great Mexican restaurants in Milwaukee that I'd, I'd love to take you to if you're in town. Awesome. I, I, I am a big fan of Mexican food. We've got a lot of it out here in Southern California. That's great. Um, so I look forward to the next time I can visit with you up there and we can go out to one of your favorite Mexican joints. Okay, Dave, in your travels, you travel quite a bit. Is there a place in and around the Milwaukee area or Wisconsin in general that uh, sticks in your mind as a have-to-go-to place when you're out and about? <laughs> the Pettit National Ice Center. <laughs> For food? Oh, no, yeah. not really. Not really. No. I don't get it. Uh, all right. Well, Any, anything, do with, anything to do with cheese is okay with me. There you go. There you go. Um, Dave, I've got uh, a question for you as well. You've um, traveled all over the world talking about ice, preaching uh, about quality of ice and impacts. Have you visited all the continents uh, as yet? No, not yet. Still working on a couple left. Uh, Paul, one last question for you. One of my high school classmates is a skater at your facility. Her name's Susie Osom. Uh, how accomplished is she, and is our equipment helping her be all that she can be uh, as a speed skater? <laughs> Susie, uh, I, I can't say that uh, I remember her when she was competing in her younger days, but Susie has been skating here for a long time. Uh, she's a very accomplished master skater. She's probably here twice a week with her husband right now and uh, is a real uh, – real ambassador for the sport. So I can't really speak to her speed skating career and what her accomplishments were, but she's, uh, she's been here and spent a lot of time and, and uh, great person to be around. Are you implying that both she and I are old by calling her a master skater? Um, I guess so. <laughs> I think master skaters now are anybody over like 35. So yeah, we fall into that category pretty easily. If you do see her, tell her I said hello and tell her that I hope that uh, the Zamboni product is, is helping her 
uh, do everything she wants to do in the speed skating world. Gentlemen, I want to thank you very much um, for being with us today. Uh, thank you, Dave, Paul, and Don no for, for your help. Thanks, gentlemen, and have a great day. You thank too. You take care. care. Thank you. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Dave. We want to thank everyone for listening to another episode of Ask the Zamboni Experts podcast. Have a question for one of our experts or an idea for a future episode? Please email your questions or requests to info at Zamboni.com. For more info and additional podcast episodes, please visit Zamboni.com forward slash podcast or search Ask the Zamboni Experts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. This is Doug Peters wishing you an ice day. <laughs>